We're now asking you to fill us with godly boldness. In Jesus' mighty name. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you for your boldness. Thank you for your boldness. Thank you for your boldness. Hallelujah. We thank you for your boldness. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let's confess this. I've lived behind closed doors. Been afraid to go out and to speak boldly for Jesus. But Lord, I'm coming out tonight from, from my little room of my own closed personality, the closed doors of fear are broken and I'm free and I'm going out into the city to proclaim the great things the Lord has done in Jesus name hallelujah hallelujah praise you Lord let's praise him come on let's praise him let's praise him Lord, we're going to be bolder outside than we are inside. What we say and do in this meeting is nothing to what we're going to do outside. But we pray another thing. Lord, will you cause signs and wonders to be done? In the name of your Holy Son, Jesus. Just raise your hands. Raise your hands. Say, Lord, anoint these hands. Anoint these hands. So as I go out into the world and see need and reach out in the name of Jesus to touch that need, will you cause these hands to be the instrument of the Holy Spirit to work signs and wonders which glorify the name of Jesus? Now, Lord, give me boldness to go out and to be active and to take risks and to be daring and full of faith by the Holy Ghost in your mighty name. Hallelujah. All glory be to God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Just think of what's going to happen. Amen. Let's worship Him. Let's praise Him. Let's say, Lord, just come. We love you. We bless you. I don't know if I'm even supposed to say anymore. Maybe that's all we need to say tonight. Let's keep the let's keep the focus sharp. Let's let's start to pray for the world. Let's pray for one more thing. Say, dear Lord, will you give me? your compassion for the lost for the lost world that you so loved you gave your only begotten son that whoever believed in you in him would not perish but would have everlasting life we read how Jesus looked upon the multitude with compassion now Lord Will you give to me as much as I can bear of the same compassion? I want you just to let God, let God by His Spirit, just begin to lay upon you burdens for cities, for nations, for places that will say, Lord, Lord give me, give me a, a people's group, give me a community, give me a city. You see, I have an, an absolutely, I don't want to call it wonderful or terrible, ache, a, a, a travail in my spirit for the nation of India. 
and, and particularly for the city of Bombay, I've carried it for, for 30 years. It, it's not me, it, it's absolutely God. I can hardly talk about that nation without bursting into tears. And I have a great burden for the city of London. I, w I would love to have spent the rest of my life in London, just, just blowing a hole in the devil's kingdom there. God's not permitted me to do that. He's brought me to the United States. But I tell you, the travail is so severe upon me. I'm beginning to feel this for certain situations in the United States. I want you to say, Lord, I want you to give me that compassion, that travail, till I get desperate, like Rachel. Give me children or I die. Oh. Play on the floor. Whatever you want to do, do. It, it's got better or worse, whichever way you <laughs> you want to look at it. Um, come back to Acts two. Those of you who were here. On Friday night, you know that I began to speak on this subject of the Lord's suddenness. And we got a certain way, then it seemed right to stop and let God in on the action, and then we had a ball. Amen? And I want to just continue right on. But for those of you who were not here, let me just give a brief uh, resume but I, I really would recommend that you get that tape because these two things fit together and and the more I receive reports of what's going on around the world the more we need to be right in touch with what God's doing amen it would be horrible to be dry when the rain's coming wouldn't it amen so what we looked at we looked at this phrase in Acts chapter 2 and it said there, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And I pointed out to you <coughs> that it's not possible to legislate God's suddenness. God just suddenly comes and that's why it's sudden because you didn't quite know when the suddenly was going to be however there is a, a way in which we can prepare for God's suddenness and if you look into these early chapters of Acts you can see how preparation was made for God suddenly and I mentioned one or two things let me just repeat them number one they came to the place where he could give them commandments by the Holy Spirit I want to ask you, are you in that place? And the other thing we, we saw was that while they were all in love with Jesus, they weren't exactly in love with each other. You can see that very plainly if you study the scriptures. And when that group of men and women went into that upper room, they were very different to the people that came out. The Bible just draws a curtain over what happened in that other upper room. It just simply says it's none of your business. But all we know is that the guys that came out were different to the guys that went in. And I believe there was deep repentance over attitudes and divisions and criticisms and jealousies. And they got right with each other. And all we know is that when the day of Pentecost came, we're told it, they were of one heart and of one mind and of one accord and of one spirit in the one place. Now all this was necessary preparation and I advised the folks on Friday night, I said look don't be writhing around in misery for the first few days or weeks when God comes. Why not be ready when he comes? Because one of the tragic, and I use this word advisedly, one of the tragic sides of revival is how God has to spend the first weeks and months cleaning up the church. And, and people go through agony of sin and, and, and of uh, conviction and getting right and getting ready before the joy bursts upon them. 
And I believe that as husbands and wives, we need to go away and say, well, look, are we ready for God suddenly? Are we of one accord? I think leadership teams, I was talking to a lot of pastors, said, now leadership teams, let's get together and see if we are of one accord. I pointed out to you that the great Welsh revival and the great uh, 1859 revival, the, the preliminary for that was a group of men really getting right with each other. And I'm, I'm very serious about this. And then we saw on Friday night, and I started to introduce you, some of the things that suddenly happened. I pointed out to you that the city of Jerusalem was shut tight even to the ministry of Jesus Christ. That he ministered in that city for three and a half years. He did his mightiest miracles there. He preached his incredible teaching. They saw his fantastic life, but frankly, the city shrugged it off. It remained just as politically corrupt, just as religiously dead, and just as full of demons at the end of the ministry of Jesus as it did at the beginning, apart from the fact that 120 people really gave themselves in obedience to him. And you could might say, well, he got a church of 120 after three and a half years ministry, and you could say he didn't do any better than any of us are doing. Even the raising of Lazarus from the dead had no significant effect upon the city. And then God suddenly comes. And in that very same city, a little nobody like Peter gets up, preaches once, and 3,000 are added to the church. Then he preaches again, 5,000 are added. And in between, we're told, multitudes are being added to the church daily. And you know, when I began to realize that, I became obsessed with what is it, what are the suddenlies or what's the nature of that suddenly that can make a non-responsive city even to the ministries of Jesus suddenly become a ripe harvest field if we can touch those keys we can take any city for God Amen and I began to just introduce that subject Friday night and the thing that I showed you there was that up until the suddenly came those disciples were living behind closed doors in fear even the physical manifestation of the risen Christ did not get them out into the streets to witness for Jesus. They were as bound by fear and just as shut in as they had been before he was raised from the dead. I showed that to you in John chapter 20 and, and, and then the suddenly came. And I pointed out to you that fear is not simply an emotion, it is a spirit. And it doesn't come from God. That's what we're told. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 7 it says, God did not give us a spirit of fear. So we're told two things. A, fear is a spirit. And secondly, it didn't come from God. And you need to be delivered from fear. Don't call it shyness. Call it what it really is, fear. I was bound by shyness until God delivered me from fear. And he can do the same for you. I couldn't open my mouth to speak for Jesus. I couldn't do any of the things I wanted to do. I was in torment, wanting to go out and witness, being, but being totally in a, unable to do it. And then, for my, me personally, God suddenly came. Amen. Has it come for you? It came for some people on Friday night. If you missed out on that, get into it, because you're going to get another chance today. Amen? Amen? I'm serious. We've got to get out of fear, and I also pointed out to you from Luke chapter 1, verses 73 through 75, that it was part of God's covenant promise to Abraham. God swore by an oath to Abraham. He said, Abraham, your seed is going to serve me without fear, in holiness and in righteousness, all the days of their life. Now, if that's not a promise, I don't know what is a promise. Well, have you cashed in your promise? I did. And I'm, I'm free from fear. I'm not even scared of dying. And that's not because I'm brave, but because God's done something in my life. I know the day when God delivered me from the fear of death. And I'm not scared of cancer or any of the. I'm not scared of anything. Because God has fulfilled his covenant promise to me. And it's not because I'm a macho sort of guy. It's because God's done something in me. And yet the tragedy is, if I ever speak on fear in a Christian convention and invite the people to respond, 
then usually at least a third, maybe more than half of the people, come forward because they are gripped by various bondages of fear in their lives. And this ought not to be so. Don't fear the economy. Amen? Now, my son Duncan, who was here last week, when the worst recession hit Britain that it's seen for decades, he was in the worst business. He was in the construction business. He was a civil engineer. He watched his company go down from 3,000 engineers to just under 600. And in his particular office, it went from 600 down to 80. But he wasn't worried because he said, well, Lord, you're in charge of my economy, not the British government. They can make whatever mess they like, but you'll keep me solvent. There was a little Czechoslovakian guy, came to the company. He didn't look very uh, impressive, so nobody would give him the time of day. My son, because he's a Christian and he's compassionate, took this man out to lunch. And the guy turned out to be in a rather ill-fitting suit, not looking, not looking too impressive, but he was actually representing a large Jap Japanese consortium that was looking to place business of 75 million pounds, about 140 million dollars. This guy got so taken with Duncan that he went back to the company and said, I'll give you the business, but the condition is that Duncan Vincent has charge of the job. And, that, and it was 13 years' work. And they've added another 15 million pounds, another 20-odd million dollars to it. So... It, but God's called him out. That's, but, I mean, God says, look, if I can make you secure, I'm God. Amen? Amen? So let him take away all your fears. Amen? Now I want to move on to some other things. Some of the other suddenness. And just before I do that, I want to just report, because I went home to San Antonio briefly on Saturday, and I drove back again this morning, and I'm, I'm glad I did for a number of reasons, because I opened my mail and I had several telephone calls. One of them was a letter from some folk in India and then I had a phone call from, uh, from India. And the report to me was that God's pouring out His Spirit in the city of Bombay. Hallelujah. They're seeing the same phenomenon that we're seeing here and I can just try to imagine very, very you know, tight, you know, uh, you know, you know what Orientals are like. They're impassive. I imagine them rolling around on the floor hysterically laughing. And Rodney Howard Brown's not even been there. They've never heard of him. And, I, and in India, there's not much to laugh about. So they're not a laughing people. They're not great. They are solid and, 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 and they're rolling all over the place. But even more thrilling is this. When I was there in February, I had a month in India in February and I realized that things were happening. Can I just quickly tell you the background? Because I think this, this will instruct us about... Houston, I'm sorry, about Austin, I beg your pardon. I forget where I am sometimes. <laughs> I believe that every capital city of every state in America is strategic for God. And God's going to blow each one of them open one by one. Amen. I'm utterly convinced Amen. of that. And so this is instructive for us. Bombay is perhaps... It's not the political capital, but it is the commercial capital of the whole of the great nation of India. It has a population now of well over 900 million people. The city of Bombay, when I went there in 1963, had a population of just under 5 million. It's now over 15 million. There was not one evangelical church in the whole city. Can you imagine that? Just some dead old denominational churches that were in error and corruption and they were, they were more full of demons than the Hindus outside the churches. It was, it, I went to the one and only Baptist church. It had five people in the church. None of them were saved. It's true. And, and they were, there was a court case going on between the only two families left in the church for possession of the flats, you know, the, the apartments over the main auditorium. They wanted to get possession of the property. And they were going to court, lying and cheating, to try and get possession of the property. It was so stinkingly foul, I can't even describe it to you. I thought, oh God. And God, this guy that was preached the first morning I got in this church, he read from Ezekiel 37, can these dry bones live? And I said, Lord, only you know. <laughs> That's where we began. Four of us got together and began to seek the face of God. After a year, we were baptized in the Holy Ghost. God visited the church. 
I'm saying this very briefly. I mean, there was sweat and tears in all this. But, but we, we moved into the phase by 1965 of a spirit-filled, successful church. But that wasn't taking the city. Can you hear me? There's all the difference in the world between having a successful church in a devil-ridden city and actually taking the city for God. We're called to do the latter, not the former. Amen? Well, things moved on. I'm telling you this story very, very quickly. 1972, uh, God began to move in a powerful way and we had four years of visitation of God. God moved primarily among the Catholic community. We had about two million just over a million Catholics in those days in the city of Bombay. And God moved amongst the Catholics. And over those next four years, we saw well over 100,000 of them saved. About 60,000 stayed in, 40,000 came out and established a network of new churches. And we had this powerful move of God between 72 and 76. And then people began to squabble with each other. And we went through a period from about, it, it probably didn't break out to about 79 or 80, but for the next five or six years we had some of the, the most painful things I've experienced in, in division coming between them. People splitting up and starting their own churches. And this completely flattened the work of God. And it was very painful. All these were sons of mine that I'd given birth to in the spirit and they weren't even talking to each other and some of them weren't even talking to me. And I went through agony over this period. Now I want to say this, you see, I do not believe and did not believe then that any of them were evil. Never ever make that mistake. They were sincerely deceived. It was demonic work and I want to plead with you, never take offence against other brothers and sisters because they are trapped and tricked by the devil. There are very, very few evil people in the world, but there are many deceived people in the world. I think most of the abortionists are deceived, not evil. So don't start hating them, but hate the powers and principalities that have deceived them. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. And over that next phase... God began to work. It's a long story and I'm trying to be as brief as possible. But I was in agony. I was in travail. I saw the fires of revival had dampened down and uh, the, the devil had counterattacked to some extent successfully. The other factor I want to bring in here is that Hinduism has, is by nature pretty benign. It's not a militant religion. You, see, Hinduism is anything you want to make it. You can follow God or, or find a path to God. You can create your own new path to God. Hinduism says that's fine. Just so long as you're sincere, go any way you like to God. And therefore they have a range of 330 million different deities and different paths that you can pursue. And if you want to create a new one, that's fine. And, and you can have the raw idolatry of the villages or you can have the intellectual satisfaction of theosophy. It's all Hinduism, it's, it's like a cotton wool, you can't get hold of the thing. They believe almost everything that you believe. You say, well, I, I mean, they even have a teaching of a second coming. They have a teaching of God becoming incarnate. The only trouble is he's done it nine times. And Jesus is one of them. See, that's where it's so hard to get hold of the thing. And the thing that really offends a Hindu is to tell them that all their religious activity is a waste of time, it will only take them to hell, and they have to believe in the one and only Jesus. Now that really makes them mad. They feel that's so bigoted and narrow, and, 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 and so you have to come to the, to the offense of the cross. Now, about five years ago, Hinduism changed its face and began to become militant. It was a new phenomenon. And it decided that it, a, it resented the fact that several hundred years ago, Islam, Islamic forces had invaded India under the Mughal invaders and had compulsively forced millions of Indians to become Muslims. And now there are 80 million Muslims in India. There's more Muslims in India than there is in the whole of the Middle East. Did you know that? Easily reachable. 
And so they decided, we're going to reconvert them back to Hinduism by force. We're going to do what they did to us. You know, don't try and get back for history, however vile it's been. Amen? And so, anyway, this new militant Hinduism began. And of course, they strongly resented Christians who proselytized. They didn't mind you following your religion as long as you left them alone to follow theirs. It's when you cross the line to make converts that they really got mad. And so they, they then decided they were going to take over the nation politically. After all, 80% of the nation is Hindu. So they started to be active in the, in the polls and gradually, uh, they, in the elections of about four years ago, there were 24 major states in India and it's a very similar system to the United States. There's a tremendous amount of state power. Every state has its own language, it's got its own legislature, it's got its own culture. It's like a, a United Nations rather than one nation. And of those 24 nations... Of those 24 states, I'm sorry, the majority of them have a large Hindu majority and they took over political power in almost every state and they decided they were going to change the constitution because the Indian constitution gives to everybody the right to practice and to propagate their religion. And again and again they've tried to stop the Christians evangelizing. It's gone to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court has ruled that under the constitution Christians are allowed to evangelize and make converts. So they decided we're going to have to change the constitution, which requires a two-thirds majority. So they were, they were setting up the nation to make it a Hindu state which suppressed all other religions. They, in, 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 into 16 of those states, the Hindu political powers got into political office and started to shut down on the Christians. It's been a time of great suffering for the church. One of our churches in Andhra Pradesh, 27 of them gathered together to worship one morning and all of them were massacred by Hindu fanatics. The whole congress was wiped out by Hindu fanatics and there's been this sort of thing going on. You don't hear it in the United States because America is so parochial in its news. But there's been an all-out war going on in the spirit. And 1% of India at the most is born again spirit-filled believers. And that 1% decided that if they got hold of God in the heavenlies, they had a political majority. Can you hear me? And I tell you, I have been involved with brothers and sisters in that nation who know how to pray. I've stayed up all night with them, bitten to death by mosquitoes, and seen them weeping and calling unto God for their nation. We know nothing about this in America. We're so namby-pamby and weak and pathetic when it comes to prayer. We've got we've to let God get hold of us to get hold of Him with the passion that's necessary to break the logjam in this nation. And I've been involved in those prayer meetings. I've been involved with wonderful young men and women who, who work longer hours than you do. Much longer hours. They get home seven or eight at night, they work hard, and then, then on the Saturday, some of them work half day Saturday, some of them work all day Saturday, uh, uh, some of them don't work Saturday, but if there's any time left, the only thing they do is to get out into the streets to evangelize for Jesus. I tell you, the passion just makes you feel you're half alive. Well, the, the, all the Hindus took over the, the, the government and we had four years of Hindu rule. It, it, it's a totally different political scene, but it reminds me a bit of where we are here in America. Because I tell you, those Hindu politicians were so corrupt, they were like corkscrews, they were twisted, they were rotten, and they just polluted the whole nation with their rottenness. And it came December 1993, the prayers of the saints prevailed in the heavenlies. And there was elections throughout all the nation. And these political Hindus were swept out of power by the Hindus who said, if that's Hinduism, we don't want it. You see, it had the very opposite effect. It, it, it made the nominal Hindus realize how horrible it was to be under Hinduism. Can you hear me? And they said, if that's Hinduism, we don't want it. Throw them out! And so there's a great vacuum now in India waiting to be filled. So what looked like the successful strategy of the devil backfired on him. Hallelujah. Now there's one 
There's one small state in northeastern India called Mizoram. It has a population of approximately only one million people. It's a tribal area. And that particular state is 96% Christian. There's been a powerful move of God that I was involved with in the 60s, and it's just engulfed the whole state. And all those tribal areas are now almost totally Christian. So when it came to the election, the church took over and said to all its people, look, these are the qualities we're looking for in our representatives. We will have peace, we will have order, no corruption, no bribery, no loud political meetings. Look for those who carry the integrity of God in their lives and vote them in. And when the election day came, over the rest of India there was, there was, there was violence, people were killed, there was bribery, there was corruption, there was lying, there was cheating, there was all kinds of the usual razzmatazz of, of corrupt electioneering in a third world country which is pretty vile. But in Mizoram it was peaceful, it was orderly, they didn't even need one policeman to regulate the whole thing. The Times of India newspaper, which is the major newspaper of India, it has a circulation of over 170 million. It's the major English-speaking newspaper of India. It was so knocked out by this, it published a three-page editorial. What happens when the church takes over was the heading of the news. This is a Hindu newspaper. And they reported the orderliness, the peace, the righteousness... The, the integrity and the goodness and the godliness of all the people that were elected and how fair and just the whole thing was. And they said, basically, this is what we need for the rest of India. Amen. You see, this has never happened before. I mean, I'm in tears. And thanksgiving to God for the incredible thing he's doing. I went there in February and while we've seen powerful moves amongst the Catholics... We've never really touched the Hindu community, but now the Hindus are pouring in. They're, they're disenchanted with Hinduism, and they are impressed with real, godly, righteous Christianity. And when I was there, some of the people that I laid hands on, there was what was then a young man in 1965 who got filled with the Holy Ghost, and now he's a, he's a, he's a statesman apostle. He has a mighty work that God's raised up. And these are some of the bits and pieces. I should have mentioned, by the way, that about five or six years ago, these different leaders that had broken away from each other, and some of them had broken away from me, they all repented, got right with me, got right with each other. When I went there in February, for the first time for years, they all came together. They honoured me, they loved me. And all that foul, devilish activity had now been destroyed by the power of the living God. They had come together. They were of one accord in one place. They still have their different streams. They haven't organisationally become one. And I don't think that's really important. But they've become one in heart. And one in spirit. And they've got one purpose. And that's to take the city of Bombay and the, and the nation of India and make it a jewel in the crown of Jesus. Just one of these men has planted out, or had planted out up to that time, 284 churches in Bombay, more than 600 over the state of India, and they were training hundreds and hundreds of young men. In fact, I was there uh, when he just made an appeal to hundreds of young people. He said, if you want to go all out for God, and go and get yourself a community, and preach to it, and get it saved, and then plant a church there, he said, we will train you. He said, I don't know where the money's coming from, but he said, I'm going to believe God for $50 a month for any one of you that will step out and give your life to Jesus. And hundreds of these young people flock forward. And up to this day, every month, that money, without advertising, you don't see it in the newspapers, you don't see it in the Christian magazines, because these people know how to pray in faith. But up to this day, every month, God's been able to pay all those young people. I mean, $50 a month may not seem a lot to you, but it's enough to live on in India. Now, with the result, I was there in February, and this guy called me Saturday morning and said, Alan, the power of God's being poured out. He said, I told you in February that our ambition was to plant out one new church every day into every ethnic group, into every people's group, until we flood this great city with the witness and power and glory of the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He said, we've just crossed 
the 1,000 mark of new churches. Which means from February to July, in roughly 150 days, they've planted out something like over 600 new churches. Which means four a day, not one a day. And he said there's just waves of God coming. And he said well, people are falling all over the place laughing. When, when we were singing that, that lovely song about suddenly, and about the lion roaring, I, I, I tell you, I was singing of Psalm 2. And of how the rulers of this world are taking counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ. So let's throw these chains off us. They're not going to restrict us. We'll, we'll kill whatever unborn baby we want to. And we will corrupt the earth just, as, just to make money. We'll do whatever we want. And these wretched Christians, they're just hindering us. I was watching last night on ABC News the um, uh, Republican uh, convention and of how... Active Christianity is becoming a major force. They've just voted into Texas that the, the chairman of the is an is a on-fire Christian. And they are, they're warning, look out, the Christians are coming to take over the nation. And they're beginning to discuss, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? I don't care what they think. Now, if a 1% minority can pray in the kind of government that is conducive to preaching the gospel, surely our majority should be able to do a lot more. I don't care what political colour they are, but they have to make room for the clear, unequivocal preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm particularly concerned that we reach the young people. We have to have access to the schools. Now, it's so stupid. When they get themselves into trouble and are in prison, then we can go and preach to them. Why get them after they messed up with their lives? Get them in the schools before they mess up. I mean, what stupid mentality is that? Amen? You get them before they're seven and fill with the Holy Ghost and they'll go straight for God. Amen? Come on! It's time we went to war, folks. The lion is roaring. And so I'm excited. I'm going again in October. And I don't know if I'll ever come back. <laughs> but just think of that. Now why shouldn't that happen in Austin, Texas? You haven't got a single reason why it shouldn't. Neither do I. And I don't even want to look for one. I want to believe God. That what he's doing in that unlikely place. I mean just imagine the fire of God sweeping across the nation of India. The, it is actually the greatest, numerically, the greatest democracy in the world. Imagine if, if it turns on to Jesus. I mean, after all, Thessalonica was just as demonic. And people turned from their idols to serve the living God in such power and authority that it, it shook the whole of the Mediterranean. Why should that not happen? And why should not we see Austin, Texas, full of the glory of God. Why shouldn't we see that great university filled with the power and the glory of God? Come on, let's start going for this. We want our students turned on to Jesus, not all this muck and rubbish that they're presently being infected with. So let's move on. We'll get back to the suddenness. I'll just mention some more. You see, come to Acts 2. And, and you find that in these early chapters of Acts, you find that Peter has to keep getting up to explain. When he preaches, he's explaining what's happening. They're saying, they're saying in verse um, 12, whatever does this mean? And you could hear the people asking those questions in the Republican convention last night. What does this mean? It means that America is going to be different. What does it mean? So Peter gets up and begins to preach and basically he refers to the prophecy of Joel and then he says that God promised he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters would prophesy. Young men would see visions. Old men would dream dreams. And upon my men servants and my masons I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Then come down to the end, verse 21, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The thing that thrills me about Bombay is it's not just the Christians having a good time. 
which is great, it's spilling out into the lost world. Thousands, apparently, I mean, I was told this just, and I can hardly believe it, thousands of Hindus are turning to Jesus Christ. Never happened before. Reinhard Bonnke is going to Hyderabad in August. He's right on cue. My son Gordon is going there to set up for his crusade in Hyderabad. And I, I tell you, it's going to be awesome. I have a feeling he's going to have the most effective crusade he's ever, ever had in his ministry. I tell you, the place is like tinder. It's right. If you know men of God and godly things, and I'm, I want to be very careful here because there's lots of counterfeit orphanages and people that are just out to con you for your money. I mean, men of God, apostolic men, it's the time to invest in India. Give them the money and the tools to get the job done. Amen? It's powerful what God is doing. But on the day of Pentecost, Peter said to them, this is what the prophet Joel spoke about. And I just want to say this as briefly as I can. And that was what happened to them was, you see, what is prophecy? Basically, if you look up the words for prophets and for prophecy and, and go back to their roots, there are, there are three basic Hebrew words. One of them the first one that's used in the first book of Samuel, means to see. And they were actually called seers before they were called prophets. Then a second word comes, which is an intensified form of that same word, and it means to see clearly or to see intently. And that's a, a word that's used later on in the, in the ministry of Samuel the prophet. And so the, the root of prophetic is really to be able to see. You see something. The third word that's used means to, to bubble forth. So what happens is that when you start to see something, it's like sort of new wine in your spirit, and it starts to bubble, and it bubbles out of your mouth, and so you start to say what you can see. You speak because you can see. That's basically what prophecy is. Now, notice that what God clearly wanted to do was to produce a prophetic people. Suddenly they were prophetic. Suddenly they could see something. Now, this could take a long time and I'm trying to be as brief as possible, but have you ever noticed going through the Gospels how absolutely thick the disciples were? I mean, they had te Jesus as their teacher. And yet when he'd finished all his teaching, they would go, Nah. <laughs> and how many times does he say, Don't you, don't you, don't you understand? Let's go to, just go to Mark 8 for a few moments. Because, you see, if we're going to take the city of Austin and, the, and the, the state of Texas and the nation of the United States, we're going to have to see prophetically. You see, when you see prophetically, it becomes fire in you. You see, I know what happened. In 1965, when God did something in me, the suddenly came and I saw. And my whole perspective of the problems of Bombay and the glory and power and majesty of Jesus Christ, it's all went like that. And you know, I believe many of us have got to see. We've had the teaching. We've even learned the terminology. We can sing the songs. But there's no fire in our spirit because we haven't really seen anything. And this is one of the great suddenness. Suddenly this thick bunch of well-taught but totally blind disciples, the lights went on. And suddenly Jesus was as big as the Bible says he is. And suddenly the demons were as small as the Bible says they are. And suddenly the power of God was as glorious as the Bible says it is. And they realized that it was big and glorious in them. That they were not a hindrance. The biggest dum-dum on earth is more than a match for the devil when he's filled with the Spirit of the living God. Amen? Come to Mark 8. Just look at that for a few minutes. And here, they get into a boat, which was a... And they depart, verse 13, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Now they'd just seen Jesus feed 5,000 with five loaves. They'd seen him feed 4,000 with seven loaves, with more left over at the end than when they started. And here they are, 
12 of them in a boat saying, we've only got one loaf. How are we going to manage? And Jesus is going, ah! (laughs) Ah! (laughs) Haven't you learned anything yet? And you hear Jesus get the nearest thing to frustrated anger that I've ever heard. And Jesus said, verse 17, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet understand? Are your hearts still hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? For 5,000, how many fragments were left over? Not crumbs, fragments. It was the pieces they handed out to feed the people with. The fragments were so multiplied, there was 12 baskets of fragments left over that nobody could eat because they were so stuffed up, there was no corner anywhere. They had enough now to feed another 10,000, if only they'd been around. When I fed, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets of fragments did you take up? Seven. How is it that you don't understand? Then, then listen, then immediately we have the story of the blind man. Come on. You see, see that, little, that little miracle of the blind man is allegorical of the condition of the disciples. They represent that blind man. Okay? And so he comes to this blind man. They brought him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and the first thing he did was to lead him out of the village. You see, many of us need to be taken out of our own little parochial, little itsy-ditsy world to see the glory, power, and majesty of the bigness of God. See, you're shut into your own little village. It may be just the parameters of this church. Well, thank God for this church, but it's only a fragment of what God's doing in the earth. When you get the grasp of what God's doing, then you're more effective even in the fragment where God's placed you. Or you may be so shut up with your own problems, you know, my marriage is in a mess. Well, that's tragic, but get a hold of God and let him fill you with his glory and that will have an effect upon your marriage. Get your wife or husband filled and it will really have an effect upon your marriage. Come out the village and stop being locked into your own small little parochial things and start to drink in the glory, majesty and magnificence of the Lord your God. That's the first thing that he did, was to take him out of the village. Then he laid hands on him, and then we read, he asked him, verse 23, if he saw anything, a very crucial moment. You see, it's so easy for people to learn the jargon of the kingdom, and yet they can't see the kingdom. To be able to sing the songs, and yet have none of the fire in their spirit. And it's very easy to become dishonest, especially if you are a leader. You, you listen to the tapes and you learn, you learn the, you know, the politically correct language. Yet you don't see anything, or at least you don't see anything very much. And Jesus came to this man, and this man, if he had not been honest, he would have missed it. Jesus said, do you see anything? And I want you to be dead honest this morning. Be really honest with God. Because the man said back to Jesus, well... I see vague, shadowy shapes. I see men as trees walking. He told Jesus exactly the way it was. I see a little. I mean, I'm not totally blind anymore. Something's happened. But to be perfectly honest, this is all vague, shadowy shapes. And maybe little glimmerings are beginning to touch you that there is a mighty God who can do mighty things and that something is happening in the earth and that the kingdom isn't just theology, it's power and it's life. Enough power to shake every institution and every authority that dares to defy the kingdom of the living God. God's only going to blow and it'll be swept out of the way. If politicians in this nation don't repent, God's going to sweep them out of the way. I tell you that. The lion's roaring. Kiss the sun and fear, it says. Lord, there's just little glimmerings begin to come, but I, to be honest, I can't 
see anything very clearly. Because he was honest, Jesus came to him again, touched him a second time, and it says literally in the Greek, it says that this man, he, he cultivated, he focused his attention. You see, you cannot get hold of the kingdom while your mind's off on baseball statistics and golfing averages. I mean, they're okay, but they're peanuts compared with the kingdom. It's amazing how many people can quote... I mean, I just read in the paper the other day about three men have given their whole life to recording every single home run that's ever been made in the history of baseball. And they've got a special computer program so you can find out how many home runs were ever uh, earned in the second, heart, second part of the third innings. And I thought, these men have given their life to this. And this wonderful thing, which is called the Bible, by the way, is now hailed as one of the most significant events in the history of the United States for the year of 1994. I thought, dear God, something's wrong somewhere. See, he focused his attention. He copied, he said, God, it doesn't feel like it yet, but I know this is more important than anything else. If I do my best to see it, Will you work a miracle so that I can see it? I mean, I, some of these guys that come into church, I mean, they look, they look fanatically excited about something, and, and I can't really see it, but I want to see it. And then Jesus touched him again, and the Bible says he saw everything clearly. And then he said, the last thing he said to the man was, don't go back again into the village. Amen. Don't go back again into the village. When I've brought you out to see my great purposes, don't for goodness sake get locked up and lose your vision. Now I believe what happened was when the Spirit came, there suddenly all that Jesus had taught them, it wasn't lack of teaching, and you don't lack teaching in this church. But what happened was the light came on to the teaching they'd already received. And boom! Now they were people gripped, possessed by a vision. And they, they were gossiping it out everywhere. They'd seen it and now it was bubbling out of their mouth. And they were prophesying everywhere. Young people, old people, didn't matter who it was. And, and they saw that God had now released something that had the ability and the power by way of explanation trying to explain to this mystified city why those people who used to just have their little meetings inside that little building are now all over the city taking it by storm and so he preaches by what he said this is what the prophets have always spoke about and if you read Acts chapter 3 I'm not going to read it all from verse 18 down to 26 you'll find Again and again, Peter uses this phrase, and all his prophets foretold these days. They promised times of refreshment from the presence of the Lord. They promised, in 21, the restoration of all things. They promised a prophetic ministry which would set the whole church in order, this, this apostolic prophetic ministry which is typed in Moses. You come down to verse 24, yes, all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, as have also foretold these days. Now listen to the punchline, verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our father Abraham. You see, Peter's got it. His eyes have been opened, he can see. So not only does, do you get sight when the suddenly comes, but what you see and what you've heard the prophets say suddenly becomes negotiable currency. Or if you like, you come to faith. Now let's just look at a word at this moment, son. If you've got an NIV, I think it uses the word, you are heirs of the prophets. And it's using this wonderful word, huios. That's how it, the Greek word, and, it, and it's usually translated son, 
and it has a very specific meaning. Very quickly, quios is the word of a grown-up adult son who has grown to father-likeness. He's now at least 30 years of age. That's how it is under the law. And now, because he's come to that age, he has the right to inherit. So the word son is someone who's now come to active inheritance. You see, in the culture of the Bible, you didn't have to wait for father to die to get your inheritance. You had to come to the age of 30. When you came to the age of 30, you could go to your father and he would give you your legal inheritance. Now, in the spirit, you don't have to wait for 30 years. You just have to come to faith. In fact, it's not a matter of time at all. It's a matter of faith. We have young men in India who are walking through the villages of Andhra Pradesh, literally casting out demons that have sat there for for millenniums, undisturbed. And this little nobody with the power of God upon him says, Get out! And they have to go. They are seeing mighty miracles, they are raising the dead, and they're not even two years old in Christ yet. They've come out of the most incredible Hinduism, worshipping idols as blind, full of demons, many of them. And when they come into our meetings, they writhe on the ground with, like snakes where all these demons come out of them. And then they get filled with the Holy Ghost. And then within a week, they're out preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they've come to sonship. When I was in Czechoslovakia, just at the time that communism was falling, we had our first public meeting. We went into the, into the auditorium where they would, would, would brainwash the people with communism. Every, every, every city had this, this compulsory lecture hall where they were all required to go. When they'd finished work, they had to attend so many nights a week to be indoctrinated in communism. Once the communism fell, these halls were vacant. So I, said, I said, let's use them to preach the gospel. So I went into this gospel hall. On Wednesday night, I started to preach. I was invited into the largest uh, senior high school in the town. I had 1,500 students come into this hall, and they gave me the whole afternoon to preach Jesus to them. Then I invited them into this public hall, and then on Wednesday night, this lad got saved. He never even heard the gospel before. He got saved on Wednesday night. He got full of the Holy Ghost on Thursday night. On Friday night, he was in the healing team, laying his hands on the sick, and God was doing miracles through his hands. And he was looking, he's looking at his hands. He, I can never forget his face. He's looking at his hands and saying, well, I just touched that, that layman, and here he's leaping around. What on earth was it? He hadn't got any theology. He had no, nothing, but he knew that God was a living God. See, what's your inheritance? And how much of it have you actually got working? And he said, well, Father, I want my inheritance, please. You're the sons of the living God, my Bible says, through faith in Christ Jesus. It's not a matter of time, it's a matter of faith. Now, in this particular passage, it says you are the sons of the prophets. So what are we being told? What you're being told is this, that everything the prophets have said, it's your inheritance. You can have it any time you decide to have the faith for it. When will the magic moment come when Isaiah 50-something verse so-and-so will suddenly happen the moment you go and get hold of God for it? That's when it'll happen. In Austin, Texas, 1994, you can have as much as you want of what the prophets have said. It's depending on how much faith you've got. And what happened was, when that suddenly came, all their technical knowledge of all that the prophets have said, suddenly went, and Peter says, hey, let's go get it, guys. And they went out to get it. And the prophets had promised that all mankind should turn to the Lord. It's what my Bible says. Does your Bible say that? It says it again and again. Every time you read one of these prophecies, it ends up with a mighty, mighty world harvest. And so, you see, when the suddenly came, these people moved out of theoretical study of the Scriptures into action. Every word that's come out of the mouth of God is to bring life to the world. Do you understand me? Am I, am I getting through to you? And 
suddenly all the, the theory and the Bible study and the listening to Jesus teach for three and a half years, all that they'd studied of the Scriptures and all that the prophets have said and all the wonderful things that they said that were going to happen, they said, why don't we just go and get it? And that's why the city was shaking. Because suddenly they'd been delivered from fear and filled with the spirit of boldness. Suddenly their eyes had been opened to see the glory of God and the power of God and they saw themselves as mighty in him and they saw the demonic powers as diminutive compared with who Jesus is. They had their eyesight fixed so they could see things properly. Now all that theoretical knowledge of the scriptures now became currency that you could go and cash. They were promise checks that you could go to the bank of faith anytime and say, I'll have that please, and I'll have that please. And the, the bank clerk, this grinning angel, was said, yeah, sure, anything you want you can have. Let's just see that the faith is genuine and it's yours. Yeah. <laughs> and so they started to take the city. And what God had promised, if you come down to the last verse of Acts chapter 3, was this. He made a covenant promise to Abraham and he says, that's also yours by faith. Everything that God promised Abraham, you see, you're the sons of the prophets, you're the sons of Abraham, you're the seed that it was being talked about. Amen? Have I gone too quickly for you there? So the seed has the right to inherit all that God promised Abraham. And God says in verse 25 at the end, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And verse 26, to you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you by turning every one of you away from your iniquities. And so what they had got, they said, look God, you've given us Jerusalem as an inheritance. You've promised every single family is going to be blessed by turning them away from their iniquities. God, you've promised that every single student in the University of Texas has got to be blessed by turning them away from their iniquities. So I'm going to go after that. I want to cash that check, please. And that's how God wants to grip some of you. You see, what he wants to do is to grip you with different parts of his purpose. You see this word family, the, the Hebrew word is the word mishpokor. And it, it's not a mother and father and two kids. It, it's used many times and, it, and it, it's translated tribe, it's translated um, clan, it's translated people's group. It's any community of people that have been gathered together with some sort of commonality holding them together. So the student world is a mishpukor. Hear me? The black population is a mishpukor. The Indian community is a, is a mishpukor. The Hispanic is a mishpukor. The Polish, original German uh, descendants, they're all mishpukors. They live in their little communities. They have their own little sort of culture. But all of them, God said, I'm, I promised Abraham, I'll, I'll save every one of them. And so what you do is you start getting hold of something. You say, well, God, I can't quite carry the whole world on my heart, but give me some specific mishpukors. And I'm going to go get them. Maybe it's the city of Austin. You see, 30 years ago, God gave me the city of Bombay. It's taken 30 years. That's why I keep breaking down and crying, because I've seen the fruit of 30 years of prayer. It's just happening before my eyes. The power of God is moving. I'm, I'm not the only one who prayed. Don't think I think that. But, but I'm part of, of the team that God put together to pray that city out of demonic darkness and into his marvelous light. And I want you to say, well, God, I want to leave this meeting with at least one mishpukor. Something you've put on my heart and say, God, I'm going to go get it for you. You see, Jerusalem was simply the first mishpukor that saw the fulfillment of the promise. It was just a working model for us so we know how God intends to fulfill his covenant promise to Abraham. What he did in Jerusalem, he has to do in every city on the face of the earth. Otherwise, God's simply the worst liar the world ever ever seen. I don't want to shock you, but I want to get the truth to you somehow. God swore by covenant, he repeated it again and again to Abraham. If he didn't mean it, he shouldn't have said it. But he does mean it. And that's why he did say it. And it's impossible for God to lie. Therefore, every mishpachor on the face of the earth has to be blessed before Jesus can come again. Otherwise, it would make God a liar. 
And suddenly, they moved out of fear and unbelief and darkness and blindness into boldness and into life and into prophetic seeing and, and uninhibited speaking and they, they got hold of the thing by faith and of course before long they were seeing the fruit of their faith. Beloved, I'm convinced the time has come give, and I don't know exactly when but we're right on the, on the brink. We're right on the, the, yeah. the dawn of God suddenly for Texas, for Austin and for the United States. Let's stand, shall we? Let's stand. Now this is what I want you to do. There's something about coming forward that I don't really understand. It sort of, it somehow declares seriousness of intent. If you are still, maybe you weren't there Friday night, and, and you are, there's fear in your life, and you want that fear, that spirit of fear, that devilish spirit of fear, to be broken off your life, and you want the spirit of boldness to come, then you come and we're going to pray for you. God's going to work. Secondly, if you feel, oh God, I'm like that blind man. <laughs> I see men as trees walking. When they start talking, but I want to see clearly. You come, and I believe God's going to touch your eyes.